we're all human. We want to grow. We want to see growth. We want to do cool stuff. We want to learn. So it's hard sometimes to stick to that plan. I would actually say, assuming you do have a plan, sticking into it is probably harder than making it. And that is a hallmark, I think, of a good project overall with long-term sustainability. Aaron, if you don't plan, planning is not hard. Ooh. Is that the first unpopular, or maybe that's the most popular opinion? <laughs> but also, plans are useless, but planning is essential. So where's the balance of the Proverbs land here? I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. Anybody else have another planning proverb? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail or something? <laughs> This might be the first majority philosophy uh, podcast out there on GoTime. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Leno. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at leno.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. Hey, Gophers. This episode is brought to you by our friends at LaunchDarkly. Feature management for the modern enterprise. Power experimentation in production. Here's how it works. LaunchDarkly enables development and operation teams to deploy code at any time, even if a feature isn't ready to be released to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release, more widely, simply update the feature flag and the changes are made instantaneously by the real-time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Subscribe if you're new at gotime.fm and follow the show on Twitter for the unpop polls, notifications of when we go live, and other solid tweets like interesting repos from your fellow gophers. We are at gotime.fm. All right, that's all for me. Here we go. Welcome to Go Time. I'm your host, Chris Brando. And today we're doing another episode in our mini series on maintenance. And the topic of today is open source. But before we get into that, let's introduce our panel today. So, up first, we have Sam Boyer, who's been on the show a little bit before. He's been on one of our maintenance episodes before. How are you doing today, Sam? I am just lovely and delighted to be here. Excellent. And then joining us as well is Aaron Schlesinger. He's been on the show in the distant past, but he's uh, very welcome back. How are you doing today, Aaron? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And my co-host today needs no introduction, but it's Johnny Borsico. How are you doing today, Johnny? I'm doing that well. Happy to be back. Awesome. I'm excited to have both you and Sam on the show again, because we can get into some nice <laughs> meta conversations here. But to, to kind of set the stage for the show today, so we're going to be uh, talking about open source. And as most of us know, open source and other source available projects are you know, a huge driver of progress in our industry. But there's uh, often a lot of focus on just like the initial building of those projects, but not a lot on the maintaining of the projects, both like maintaining the code and maintaining the, the human aspects of projects. So that's what we're going to talk about today. 
And so to kind of just dive right into it, let's start with like the beginning stages of maintaining an open source project, like just getting it started. So I'll send this one over to Sam. Thinking about initial projects, what makes for like a good start to an open source project? What do you kind of look for when you're looking at maybe early stage open source projects? Well, so are we talking about what I look for when I make one or what I look for in judging someone else's? Let's start with judging someone else's. All right. I mean, you know, land on a page. I want to read me. I want to have a decent sense of, of what this thing actually is that I'm considering using for whatever purpose. The quicker I can get to figuring out how to actually slot it in to uh, whatever I'm planning on using it for the better, although that can depend a bit, right? Like if I'm trying to figure out how to install a Vim plugin, it's a little bit different than if I'm trying to figure out how to like use a SAT solver assisted library, something like that. But still the question of, of how the project connects to the larger ecosystem of software is one of the, the first that I go after. And then it's on to, you know, examples. And I mean, really this is a process of how do I, how do I load as much information into my mind as fast as possible about what this thing is intended to do? Okay. Yeah. That optimized for that. I think those are the same kind of things that I definitely look for. I would definitely say agree with like, you know, having a good read me, having a good, just like, tell me what you are. Don't like, let me have to like have to hunt through your source code to figure it out. Mm. Aaron, how, what do you uh, kind of agree with that? Do you have other things that you look for? Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. I think vision, like you, Sam, you, you pretty much alluded to it there. Just having a vision. Why did you start the project? You being, you know, the creator or whoever wrote the readme, you know, why does this thing exist? What is it trying to fix or solve or create? For me also, I like... I guess I would call it ergonomics. So I like to see how easy is it for me to actually get this set up as a contributor. And of course, this really applies primarily if I'm looking to be in this project, somehow involved with this project over the long term. But yeah, you know, I want to know, hey, can I pretty easily, for some relative definition of easily, depending on the, the kind of focus area of the project, but can I relatively easily get set up and fix a bug later on down the line or add a feature or whatever. Because that that's really important, I think, for long-term health. Hmm. Yeah, I like that, man. Those are some those are some good answers. I like that you're connecting already to the contribute back bit, right? Yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> well, actually, so I have a question there. Is it are you coming at that from the perspective of the person coming into somebody else's project or from the person that like as, as the maintainer of the project, the importance of of providing a, a path back to contribution? I would go with both, but I have different concerns as a consumer versus a producer. So as a consumer, I might not ever contribute, but it's important to me that I see that the project has thought of contributors because I think that's a pretty good indicator of long-term sustainability and success. As a creator, part of the reason I like a great contributor experience is because I'm going to be a contributor Future me is going to forget how current me set up the make file or whatever. But also that tends to make things, at least for me in my experience, it tends to make things way easier down the line when you have a community of even low single digit contributors. It tends to make things a lot easier, you know, if most people can download, do a git clone and maybe download mage or just run make whatever. And it just works. 
that tends to cut down on those those annoying most of those annoying bugs like oh i didn't install this code generation library i didn't install x y and z and so you know i i'm stuck i can't i literally can't do anything until you the the creator of this project comes and helps me debug this over a github issue so for me that's that's a little bit selfish i suppose but in a good way because it helps folks down the line get started without that toil so you mentioned there um wanting to see good a good way for you know contributors to contribute to a project even if you aren't planning to do it yourself i guess how do you feel about projects like lightstream and what ben johnson's doing where he's like no i don't want to have any contributors and i'm explicitly saying that do you see that in the same kind of vein where it's like well they're being upfront about how they do it or do you think it should be you know you should always want to be taking on contributors like would you see that as a negative there for a project oh no he's thought about it right He's thought about what he wants the long-term vision of this project to be. And he's said, I'm not interested in contributors. So as long as you've thought about it, because a lot of people, I think myself included, I may, I may be one of the bigger offenders of this. I want to build. So I start something and I build, 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 build. And then it gets to a point where it's mostly feature complete, or at least the biggest features are done. And then what? Right then you have to figure out how this thing is going to live over the long term. But he's thought of that already. And that's, I think that's wonderful. You know, if he's saying, I am prepared to be the only contributor to this project over the long term, then that's totally fine with me. It's really the projects that clearly haven't thought about it yet. Uh, It's not to say they're not going to be successful. There's plenty of projects that haven't thought about it at the first X number of months, weeks, years, whatever, and then figure it out later. But I do think it's a good sign when there is a plan put in place earlier rather than later. I think Ben Ben could be an outlier in my mind. So to add my two cents to the original question you posed, um, Chris, obviously there's going to be the the consumer side and the creator side, right, as, as Aaron has alluded to. So if I'm going to consume an open source project, perhaps I need to run some self-contained service, whatever it is, the code happens to be open source and it's maintained and I'm going to have that criteria of, okay, is does this thing have le- have legs? Has it been used for a while? Has it been you know in production? Am I going to have a mess on my hands if I deploy this thing? Because the moment I download that code and I start running it in production, I'm responsible for it. And it's not, it's not the people who wrote it that are responsible for it. I'm responsible for it and not when it's operating. Now, I'm going to have a different set of criteria than if I'm say, creating an open source project, whereby in the creation process, uh, oftentimes even the popular projects, they don't, there's a difference between starting to write your code out in the open, right? Versus starting out saying, I'm going to build an open source project, right? Because you don't know how popular it's going to be. You don't know what the interest level is going to be. Sometimes a lot of open source projects become popular. They they become so accidentally. So now the originator, basically, it's like, oh, crap, I've got something in my hands here and, and they might be, you know, sort of um, contributing and, and sort of leading and, and providing a vision and direction for the project. Uh, and then eventually um, they need to step away or whatnot. And that's why, you know, you have a, a lot of popular projects that end up getting forked and, you know, and, and the vision doesn't perhaps get fully realized. That may or may not happen. But bringing this back to someone like Ben Johnson, who has created projects that have become popular. Like I'm thinking of Bolt, for example, BoltDB. 
for those who don't know about BoldDB, is this sort of a its own sort of a, just a Go package you can install, and it'll actually you know do storage for you. You can use it as a storage mechanism inside your Go code. You can say, hey, store this. It'll serialize it, and when you need it back out, it'll deserialize and all that stuff. So it's you use that in lieu of a say a dedicated you know database you know, service or something, right? It's part of your code, right? So he got to the point where that project in his mind was feature complete. It was done. It was a, it was a finished completed project, right? Folks were trying to open pull requests, trying to make it do more than it originally wanted to do, and et cetera, et cetera. So Ben basically said, okay, I'm going to archive this project. I'm going to freeze this project because in my mind, it is done. It is a complete project, right? That is a very hard decision to make. When you see that interest, there's even love in the community for that project. And people want to keep extending it and adding things to it and whatnot. And for you to be like, okay, I have realized my vision for this project, right? I'm going to stop adding things. I'm not going to receive any pull requests. I'm not going to receive any fixes, whatever it is. For what it is, it is complete, right? And he just stops it, right? So having had that experience and bringing that experience with him into something like Lightstream, right? He's basically deliberately saying, I've been there. I've done that. I know exactly what I want out of this project. Maybe at some point he'll change his mind and he'll be open to contributions. But today he's driving towards a vision. So ben, again, Ben might be an outlier in that clarity, right, for an open source project. Not many people come with open uh, into the open source and trying to build projects, right, with that clarity. But I think that clarity is valued, and I, and I wish more people um, sort of were more cognizant, right, or, or just more aware, right, of what happens, right, with longevity of open source projects, right, and the how are you, what are, what are your plans for it, and if you can establish those plans ahead of time, right, as people are in the evaluation phase, looking at this project, saying, hey, do I want to bring this into my uh, code, or should I just fork it now and do my own thing with it, right? So there's a difference between coding out in the open and having a project accidentally become successful, and now you've got you've got something that you have to maintain, versus being deliberate about exactly what you're doing with it. Right. I think those things should be separate. I like this. I agree. I think I would say that I'm not sure I would call him an outlier necessarily, but maybe that's just to sound contrary in a podcast. I think of it as a gradient, but everything you're talking about there, Johnny, is that they're the elements of the gradient. The question is, what is the purpose of the project? What is its intent? What is its goal? And when you think about writing your contributing MD or Lightstream effectively has saying, nope, what I think you're you're really doing is you are saying, okay, here are the undefined, unexplored, not fully explored areas of the project. Here is where there is enough space, uh, at least when it comes to code contributions. Uh, here's, here's where there's enough space that a human mind should really come in and like exercise its full creativity. And here's the bounding box that we're asking you to keep that creativity inside in order to keep it constructively within the goals of the project. And in the case of Lightstream, I know what that purpose is. There are not questions at that level. There are contributions that are valuable to be made, but I remember it's funny actually, because I was thinking of Lightstream before Chris mentioned this, and it's not in the readme, but somewhere else in the in the docs, he explains that the motivation behind this was essentially the, in this particular class of application, the cost of attempting to integrate external changes and to verify the correctness of all of the other parts of the system was so high that it contributed significantly to burnout because he felt caught between wanting to be responsive to people's shown interest and like maintaining the correctness of the project. So when you have such a strong vision, 
that you are clear on what the correctness criteria are in the first place and you don't need to make up new functionality and therefore new correctness criteria, it's perfectly fine. But that's what makes it a gradient, right? Is it's all it's actually about like how precisely defined are all the different pieces of, of your project and what they're supposed to do. And also why, to quote the reading here from Lightstream, initially Lightstream was close to outside contributions. The goal was to reduce burnout by limiting the maintenance overhead of reviewing and validating third-party code. However, this policy is overly broad and has prevented small, easily testable patches from being contributed. Because yes, when the project does deviate from its own stated goals in some way, surely if someone can contribute a patch that brings it back in line without introducing new goals, these can be helpful. I think we see value similar to value planning a technology project, right? It's, as you said, Sam, it's, I'm going to choose as early as possible what the bounding box is for in the con- contributing case for how, if at all, people will contribute code or tests or whatever, or documentation, what have you. And for tech, similarly, it's, you know, I'm going to choose how far the feature set of my project X is going to go. And I'm going to use that vision in either case to decide, probably indefinitely, to decide, am I going to A, take a contributor or an issue or a pull request or whatever, or B, am I going to say yes to a feature? And that, that is a hard thing to do because that is planning. And planning is hard, as we all know. That is planning. But it's also hard to have the confidence later on to stick to that plan when whatever, there's a really cool feature that you've always wanted to do or that'll let me use this awesome library if I want to build this feature or I see some GitHub stars now and maybe if I accept this pull request, I'll get more GitHub stars, right? We're all human. We want to grow. We want to see growth. <laughs> you know, We want to do cool stuff. We want to learn. So it's hard sometimes to stick to that plan. I would actually say, assuming you do have a plan, sticking to it is probably harder than making it. And that is a hallmark, I think, of a, of a good project overall long, with long-term sustainability. Aaron, if you don't plan, planning is not hard. Ooh. Is that <laughs> the first unpopular, or maybe that's the most popular <laughs> opinion? <laughs> but also, plans are useless, but planning is essential. So where's the balance of the Proverbs land here? I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. Anybody else have another planning Proverb. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail or something. <laughs> this might be the first, the first majority philosophy uh, podcast out there on Go Time. Yeah, it's unplanned. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, when, when starting a project, I guess this is kind of a question too. Should you do that upfront kind of constraining of the project, or should you just kind of build it and see where it goes? Because I think there's like there is the the one school of thought where it's like I kind of know where I want to build, what I want to build, so I kind of build it and put the constraints around it. But then there's also this other effect where sometimes you build something or, you know, this happens to companies here, you start something and it's meant to do one thing, but then it kind of goes in a different direction and it kind of finds a better place to sit in another area where that wasn't within your original constraints. So I'm wondering like, how do you balance or is it even worth it to balance those two things? Or is that just something that we, we can't really determine early on and we should just kind of <laughs> go okay sam you're, you're pointing at me but like how do you yes what? <laughs> no you can't know i really believe actually that the planning is essential but plans are useless all of my teammates will tell you that they they hear that from me a lot i think it is good to go in with the clearest possible intent that you can and as i have over the course of my career i've gotten more and more into having like a, a sort of well-defined 
constraint on what something is supposed to do at the outset, but you have to be flexible enough to recognize when you actually have to shift those goals and, and, and what the, the reasons for doing so might be, the right reasons for doing so. Do you happen to have an example of a reason? God, no. <laughs> <laughs> to make something shift? I mean, like, I feel like the, the easy ones that jump to mind are more like, I was unaware of some underlying technical reality that I was assuming was easier than it was. And that has become such a, basically, you know, you assume that a dependency was, was going to be there. I don't know, like what's coming to mind is like, oh, distributed systems are easy, right? Like I don't have to worry about consistency, you know? And then you realize, oh wait, everything's broken because I didn't worry about consistency. And you have to like pivot the sort of whole way that your application, whatever it is, works. Once you realize the horrifying pit of complexity that is <laughs> distributed systems. But those almost feel trivial. Like that, that almost feels like a more learnable set than, oh, people just actually like don't care about solving this problem in this way. I have been thinking about this problem wrong, which I'm, I'm racking my brain to be more concrete and I'm not coming up with anything. But this seems both like more challenging and more common because I, I think we just routinely don't actually understand <laughs> what problems are people are actually having when we try to write software to solve them, even when those problems that they're having are software problems. It's difficult figuring out what the actual problem is. But it's okay, right? Because there's no way you're going to create something that meets the needs of everybody. That's why you have forks. You, know, you, you want something that you know that meets 80% of your requirements and there's a 20% that doesn't, you fork it, then you add the 20 and you're good. Only problem you now becomes, you know, if you need to fix things and the 80% that, that you got, if you need to keep that up to date, right, then you then it's your responsibility to bring bring in that new code on a regular basis and whatnot, right? And like and most people don't do that, right? They just the fork it, add their features, and hopefully, you know, um, they YOLO the rest, and hopefully there's no there's no updates <laughs> to be made, and, and you know, but that that might be okay too, right? So, I think the, the for me, the smaller the scope of a project, open source or otherwise, right, the the better, right? We get into trouble when we when we accomplish the initial vision, and this is not just open source. This is just every company out there with a product. We laud the simplicity of things. Oh, this thing is so much simpler than this other thing, which is bloated and, and has all these bells and whistles that I don't use or need or whatever it is. But that company has been, you know, that group has been building stuff and adding things because, you know, there were some people, the original solution, you know, satisfied and some that it didn't. So they keep trying to add all the things to try and cover, you know, as, as a wider base as they can. But and then, and then all of a sudden we're like, oh, man, that thing's gotten too big. It's this and that way. Now we laud simplicity. And then we start the cycle again. It's like, oh man, like I wish that simple thing had just one more thing and 200 other people saying, yeah, one more thing. And then, you know, you start the cycle again, right? So again, that's not a bad thing. If we accept, right, that this is how software works, then it's okay. Again, it's a matter of hoping for quality, hoping for that uh, um, you're going to get to a point you've accomplished a vision because the scope was tight and small. Just again, to use it Bolt as an example, right? The scope was tight and small. It got done. It was finished. Okay. And, and then, you know, the author moves on to something else, right? And if you want to use Bolt, you can. And it's excellent at what it does. If you need something else, you go find whatever that thing is, right? And it's okay to finish projects, right? 
in the open source community, I, I see things that dr- drag on and on. And, and, you know, you go to an open source project and, and, you, and you see a bunch of issues that have been open. You know, the maintainer maintainers are no longer paying attention to them and, and they're falling out of uh, um, sort of a maintenance and, and repair and things. You have, you know, pull requests that are open. People are begging, hey, can you please merge this in? This is going to fix this bug. And here's a, the tests and here's a, all the due diligence. But the original maintainers and creators have moved on to whatever that, that next thing is for them. Again, nothing wrong with that, right? Again, if you bring in these projects, you you inherit them. You inherit the responsibility of those things, right? So they don't these maintainers don't owe you anything. You, know, you use their software at your own risk, right? But it's okay if there was one lesson here that I think open source maintainers, right, can take away is that it's okay to call a project done. It's okay to say it's finished. It is feature complete. You will accept patches for fixes. You will accept security updates, whatever the case may be, right? But it's okay to say this project, its original intent has been accomplished. This project is done, right? Moving on to something else. Now, that way, when somebody stumbles on it, they know, okay, if I need A, B, and C, and it checks these boxes, this is a complete project that does that. And I'm good with that. When you take it, you inherit it, you're good with that, right? And rather than hoping that, oh, I hope they're going to keep maintaining it. No, it's okay to complete things and move on. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Incident.io. Every software team on the planet has to manage incidents and a very large percentage of those teams are using Slack to communicate. That includes us. With Incident.io, you can create, manage, and resolve incidents directly inside Slack. Here's how it works. Head to Incident.io and sign up for free, then add it to your Slack. From there, you have a brand new incidents channel where all incidents get announced. Use the slash incident command to create and manage incidents. This command lets you share updates, assign roles, set important links, and more, all without ever leaving the incident channel. Each incident gets their own Slack channel plus a high-res dashboard at incident.io with the entire timeline from report to resolution. Get everyone on the same page from the moment they join the incident and help stakeholders stay in the loop. Add incident IO to your Slack today and prove to yourself and your team that they have everything you need to streamline your incident management. Learn more and sign up for free at incident.io. No credit card required. Again, incident.io. I do wish that the tools we use like GitHub were a bit better about this. Like I feel like if there was an option in GitHub to like mark something as like this is feature complete, like if you find a bug or something, like I'll go fix it. Like as a maintainer, if you log an issue and it's a big bug, it's like okay, I'll, like I can go maintain because it it's within the original scope. Cuz that's the thing about Bolt is like I love Bolt, but like every time I look at it and just says archived on the top of it, it feels like a big like <laughs> don't come here sign, like don't use this. This is old software. It could be could have problems with it. So I feel like that's like a, a platform issue that we can help fix. Mm. And I, I think too, it's like some projects really do need to like kind of rein their scope in. And I think sometimes they have this effect of just making it more difficult, I think, for people that do want to be as, as 
pragmatic about these things as like I and m- many of you tend to be. I'm thinking about like Viper specifically, where I remember this was years ago, where I had my whole team was telling me like, oh, we got to use Viper, we got to use Viper, we got to use Cobra, we got to use Viper. And I was just sitting there writing all of this boilerplate because Viper had like grown and grown and grown to be able to do any kind of configuration you wanted. You just got to configure the configuration. <laughs> and I sat down one day and I just wrote my own implementation from scratch using the Reflect library. And it was fewer lines of code to do all the configuration we needed than just the boilerplate of Viper. And I just sat there and I was like, this is a project that like everybody wants to use. It's like the quintessential example of like, oh, you want to you wanna write a command line utility or something. Go grab Cobra and Viper and use them. They're spread everywhere. But it's like, okay, now I have more code to maintain. That's not even really doing the core thing I want to do. That's just boilerplate there because the project kind of expanded too wide. And I feel like there's a, a class of projects that's like that, that are super popular, but have expanded their scope too much. And I just wonder, like, how do we how do we back away from that sort of stuff? You don't, Chris, you don't. So let's take another <laughs> example that is not, say, not necessarily grounded in the in Go community. Let's let go with Ruby, right? So in the Ruby ecosystem, okay. you have Rails, which has basically is very popular, has continued to groan, you know, every year, right? Keeps adding new things, tr- keep trying to take, you know, toil away from the developer and all that stuff. And some people love it. Even if they need a simple API that could be done with something like Sinatra, right? They will go with the Rails route because it's popular, right? Lots of people know it. If a developer leaves today, you hire somebody uh, um, tomorrow, they come in, they know Rails, they're, they're productive, right? Even if your project could have been done with something like Sinatra, you know, the simpler route for tossing together your quick API endpoints, you're going to go with a more complicated thing, right? Or maybe you're sensible enough to realize, okay, I'm just going to start with something small, right? So I'm going to go the Sinatra route, right? And then you start, you know, basically falling back into your habits that you you know and love with the, the more popular things like Rails. And you're like, oh, I wish I could do this. I wish I had an ORM. Oh, I wish I had, you know, the, the special routing. I wish I did that. And then the next thing you know, you, you're inching your way to the more complicated thing because you're used to the complicated thing. So rather than saying the projects need to change, we need to change ourselves. We need to change our approach to what how we're building things, right? So there's a reason I love Go. Because Go is not trying to be all things to all people. It is a very specific language that is designed to solve a very specific set of problems that it saw, right? So when we talk about you know Go versus Java versus Rust, whatever it is, I look at these and I'm like, ah, I kind of don't really care what, whether you think this language is better than Go or not. Because for me, Go is solving a very specific set of problems. I'm not really going to compare feature by feature. I could care less. I honestly could care less about this other language's feature, right? Because that is not a problem that I have, right? So if we start looking to solve whether, you know, whether it's, it's picking a, a language or the right package or the right uh, full-on open source project that we're going to run, whatever it is, if we started saying, hey, let me not jump to the deep end. Let me not pick the most complicated thing, the most feature-rich thing, the, most, the thing with the prettiest website, the most stars, whatever. If we started looking at, okay, what problem am I trying to solve, right? We'd get ourselves in... in, in fewer hot waters than we needed to. And I'm not looking at a lot of people that are jumping in the Kubernetes bandwagon right now. That is one example that I will always fall back into. Most of you don't need Kubernetes. <laughs> That's my unpopular opinion already. <laughs> you mentioned a really specific type of consumer, which I um, I think most would agree is the most common consumer of open source, which is a business, right? You talked about hiring. So that brings up another point. Is a, a business might not choose or build technology that's the simplest. They might not even want to build technology that's the technically the simplest. 
And you mentioned the community and that, that might be, I've never built a business. I've never run a business. So all I can do is make educated guesses here, but the community quality and size might be one of the biggest reasons why you would choose a technology that's complicated than an alternative, more complicated than an alternative. So Rails is your example, right? Rails has a probably bigger community, probably a lot more quality engineers that you can hire that will know and be attracted to a Rails job than a Sinatra job. And that that might be a reason to choose Rails, even if you've got to build a REST API with two endpoints or something like that. Then let's not pretend this is a technical problem. I would agree. Yeah. There was an essay written... 10 years ago, which I could have sworn that I shared last time I was on here, and I don't think that I did, but it's by a guy named Stephen Wittens, who was an early member of the Drupal community, which is where Chris and I met in the mists of time in the past. Uh, and he wrote this <laughs> essay. He like famously departed the Drupal community and wrote this essay 10 years ago, which I've put in chat here. I don't know if that goes through to YouTube, whatever, we'll put it in the show notes, in which he described... Well, amongst other things, how communities can become self-fulfilling prophecies that just continue to produce things inside of the context that they've already created. So at least part of the reason that that happens is, yeah, once you have a community and you have other people around who are watching and paying attention and speak the same language that you do, and I don't necessarily just mean programming language, you could start at the programming language level, Ruby, then go down to Rails or PHP and then down to Drupal, like this is a community of people you can have a conversation with. It's a medium through which you can express, which is both important from a purely practical solving problems perspective, but also from a human getting, expressing your creativity and having it seen by others perspective. And I do think that, that there is a fundamental tension there between the growth of the community and keeping things small and simple because there isn't really enough space often for everyone to make those creative expressions and still have things remain sufficiently simple. I think that's long-term. I think that's the most productive way to grow open source though. Yeah. No, right. I'm not saying it's not good, Yeah. but it, it's just it's a tension. It's a constant tension. We, we need that to evolve, right? Mm -hmm. Have the next programming language, yeah. the next systems language, the next web framework, whatever, you know? Yeah. Well, this is part of why... John, so this part of why Johnny's cycle thing matters, right? Like we're going to see the growth and then something new will come along and we'll displace it because we have to allow the humans who are in the space to be human. Yeah. But I feel like there's also this amount of like, because there is that, you know, we have to build these communities and there's a lot of good focus on growing things. But I'm also always struck by how like the things that we actually depend on at the end of the day are like very old things that <laughs> haven't changed a lot. Like I've yeah. said it in a previous <laughs> podcast, but I'm like, HTTP has three versions over 30 years that are all compatible with each other. Like, mm. and this is the bedrock of not just technology, but of our society, right? If HTTP broke in some <laughs> horrific way tomorrow, we would all be like panicking. Like financial markets would stop <laughs> working. Like it just like the world would collapse. And so it's like, we talk about, you know, this open source stuff and, and how important it is to like build these projects and to grow the stuff. But then you kind of turn around and you look at like, well, what is the actual bedrock of how we operate and what we do? And it's these like boring, very slow moving technologies. I feel like space in the world for both of these things to exist, right? But I feel like we're having this creeping that's happening where people are creating things that want to be that bedrock, 
but they're creating it with this like hyper growth startup-y mentality. Once again, Kubernetes, right? Like Kubernetes wants to be this foundation, right? It wants to be this thing on which we can build the other things, but it's also just like a giant mess, I want to say at the end of the day. Like it is an extremely difficult beast to operate. Like if HTTP was this difficult, like HTTP wouldn't have won. If like Linux was even like as difficult as Kubernetes is, I don't think Linux would have won. So it's like, how do we... I guess, is there a way to kind of shift us back? Is there a balance here that needs to be struck in some way? Or is this just like, maybe we just got to like keep trying and eventually someone will make like another one of these things. It's just like people just make lots of open source stuff and one of them catches on for some reason. That's what's happening now. It depends on whether you're building. I like your use of uh, HTTP as sort of a fundamental sort of piece, right? To pretty much all of, most of us doing what we do, right? In this field. But I look at that as a sort of much lower level component, right? So it, it's to me, it, it's the differentiation between a, a component, right, versus a solution, right? Kubernetes is a solution. HTTP is a component, right, in my mind. So the lower down a stack you are, right, if you're talking about, okay, I want to create something that's work operating at the TCP level, like the, the network level, I want to deal with packets. I, so th- at that level, there's a lot less sort of churn, and I don't want to say lack of innovation, but there's fewer things to change, right? There's fewer groups trying to upend and sort of reinvent, right, that wheel, right? So we'd rather build things that are much higher up the stack, right? Basically inching your way closer to a complete solution, right? Because at the end of the day, that VC money is for solutions, right? Not for components, <laughs> right? So that's where you have most of the activity happening at the solution level. So, you know, you have people that are building on top of those solutions to create their own solutions, right? So the higher up the stack you go, the more contributors you're going to have, the more people, you know, who can use higher level languages to create things and to build solutions and top of those solutions right so to me it's like if you're at the systems programming level yes there's some innovation there but not the same kind of innovation happening at much higher up the stack so i think it's important to sort of differentiate those different layers and the kind of contributions the kind of open source projects you're going to see right in those arenas versus you know things higher up the stack right people are creating go packages that do very specific things all the time right but fewer people are trying to reinvent how go does net http right or how go you know handles networking you know a request or whatever it is right so but they are building these things that are sort of much higher up the stack to say hey i need a package that's gonna do this encoding in a very specific way that i don't get them from the standard library or from any other third party library so they create one and open source that right so those kinds of innovations those kinds of uh, contributions there's a lot more of those and those are the ones i'm very critical of those are the ones i'm gonna sit down and say hey so um do i need to bring in this third party encoding or can I use what's already in the standard library or even better yet? Is there a way I can design my solution not to require this different high intensity encoding unless that is part of my secret sauce for my solution, right? If my solution is to to package and serialize something in a very specific way, high efficiency, whatever it is, okay, then maybe it's worth writing my own you know, uh, encoder to solve that particular problem because that is my business, right? But any other um, case, I'm being very critical of these things. Well, do I want do I want to bring this into my world because I'm going to be responsible for it, right? So I think we have to sort of be very cautious as to what layer, right, are we looking at here in terms of contributions and open source and maintainability. So Chris, you asked like, is there a solution to this problem? And Johnny, you mentioned what I believe is part of the solution, not the whole thing, because we still have people involved. And I mentioned before we started going before we went live, it's like people are hard, right? But part of the solution is what you said. You said there is a difference between solutions and components. 
right? Solutions are not composable. They're generally not interoperable. Sometimes they're not open either. Components are though. HTTP is a component of most every application, every business that's being started today on the internet, right? So, and, and it's open, completely open. Anyone can pick up the RFCs of HTTPs one, two, or three. Anybody can build their own implementation of it for their favorite language. Everybody can use it to communicate with anybody else. Even Kubernetes is a solution, but the internals are moving towards componentization. I was going to say, yeah, that's a fun, um, it's fun to pick Kubernetes there. Like API servers as a pattern. Just because people have all these components, even if they're very high quality, very well documented, very strong communities behind them, components, doesn't mean, of course, that we're going to make open source better. I think we have to ensure that people buy into the concept of small open components in the Unix philosophy. They do one thing and do thing, do it well, but also that they're incentivized to create and use those things too. That is a problem that I cannot solve because <laughs> people are hard. I'll, I'll probably say that a few more times today, <laughs> but the mere fact that the pattern is established and popularized in, again, we're in the Kubernetes world, we're picking on Kubernetes, so that's becoming a more popularized pattern in the cloud-native world. The mere fact that it's becoming more popularized is a massive step in my eyes towards improving the state and quality of all of those components that are growing in the ecosystem right now. I think that's a really good thing because you have that there. The next step is to figure out how to get people to believe in it and use it and so forth. But at least it's there. And I think that's a, a really strong direction to go in. Yeah, I, I guess I, I want to maybe push back a little bit on this like HTTP as only a component and not as a solution. Because I like HTTP 1, I think that works for. But the genesis of HTTP 2 and HTTP 3 was very much a, a solution-oriented thing, right? It came out of, you know, HTTP 2 came out of Speedy which was, you know, Google's desire to like, we don't want all these connections coming into our server. So we're going to invent this new protocol, do all this stuff to kind of make all this work. And then after that, they figured out, oh, head of line blocking, still a problem. So then they created Quick, which then kind of made its way into the IETF and this whole standardization process. And I feel like that's sort of the same sort of thing that Kubernetes is trying to do, to your point, Aaron, of like, okay, we've built this main solution. And before, in the long ago era, there were all of these different solutions that then kind of came together to be part of Kubernetes, and now Kubernetes is itself trying to do the same sort of standardization thing. But I also feel like the HTTP route of standardization, while very, very long, has felt like a bit less hectic than the Kubernetes route. And I wonder if that's just like because they're different layers in the stack, as you said, Johnny, or if this is like a different approach to maintenance as well of like, you know, HTTP 2 and 3 were very much Google decided to go do something and then convince everybody else that that should be adopted. Whereas Kubernetes was more of an open community thing. So maybe that's just like the messiness of trying to go through a big community standardization and get everybody on board. I'm not really sure, but in my mind, it doesn't really feel like there's that much of a difference between HTTP and Kubernetes, except for HTTP being much older and being a, a slightly different type of solution or platform than Kubernetes it is on a different level. I will give you that, definitely. I feel like maybe solution is is used in two different ways here. Hmm. Solution doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that like the the sense that you're talking about there, Chris. I think is a solution as the uh, thing on the other end of a problem, 
but that's not necessarily the sense that Johnny originally used the term in, right? Like solutions being problem driven, whereas Johnny was talking more about the completeness of it, the completeness aspect. That's kind of the angle I was going as well. And I think maybe part of the problem is because we do take HTTP as this kind of like, because it does, it moves a lot slower and it's more of this kind of foundational thing that it is a lot easier to see as a component than it is to see as like a solution because they are doing work to make it like, this is the platform on which you should build your APIs. Here's all the tools you need to do it. Go forth, use those tools to build it. Well, so what we're really talking about then is certainty and scope, right? Which is what we were talking about before. True. What is the uh, the reasonable bounds of responsibility for HTTP? That's a more well-defined question mm. than right. mm. what the reasonable bounds of responsibility for Kubernetes is. I don't think that question has even been answered. No. I'm not sure if it's been considered at scale for Kubernetes. <laughs> <laughs> and just to be clear, I, love, I, I work on Kubernetes and its surrounding <laughs> technologies every day, all day, every day. So I, I happen to really love the technology lest someone think I'm trashing it. Kubernetes is like a general model of computation. Of course, it's not going to be. <laughs> right. There's no limits on that. You know, universes, making universes. That is the limit yeah. on computation. So there you go. Yeah. And maybe this is another like maintenance thing as well. Because I think it's like they're the, like, if yeah. you actually go and look at the working group for HTTP and kind of look at the way that they're thinking, they have that like, it's pretty large. It's pretty aspirational what they kind of want you to be able to do with HTTP. And if you if you actually read through the specifications too, what HTTP can do versus what we often use it for and like the, the mass reinvention of parts of HTTP that are designed worse and then put on top of HTTP, I think there's just like this level of misunderstanding, which might go back to this, you know, what we were talking about earlier of like, have you presented your open source project in a way that makes it so people understand what you're trying to get them to use out of it at the end of the day? And I will definitely say that unless you are someone like me that likes to go and read specifications for fun and profit, then it's not going to be something that's easy to pick up on. So I think a lot of the rhetoric in the world is like, oh, you can do some Git, you can do some post and maybe some CRUD with it. And, that, and that's sort of it. And you shove some JSON over it if you're doing an, an API. But I think that's where people's like, thoughts of it kind of end. But anyway, anyway, we've I feel like we've gotten a little <laughs> off track of the, the maintaining open source route. But I, I, I think that this is related to it of like burnout and just having maintainers have to think through all of this while also maintaining a project seems really, really difficult. And I think all of us here have like maintained an open source project before. So I guess, you know, a little content for the maintainers out there. What strategies have you used in the past to kind of not spiral out of control thinking about this existential crisis of like bounding your project while also trying to maintain the whole thing and like keep your sanity and be able to sleep at night and not stay up till 4 a.m. every day kind of solve these problems. See, I was uh, like the recursive loop that I get stuck in is how do I bound my project? But I try to not get stuck in that recursive loop because it is the bounding of the project that I use to actually stay sane. So I, I try to stay only like meta crazy, but like day to day sane. <laughs> so I lose my mind at the level of what should the bounding box be, but I try to stay at least sort of sane as to what I've decided the bounding box is today and make the decisions about like how I organize issue queues, how I triage issues, how, you know, I'm going to prioritize things, how I respond to people, how I organize people's interest and efforts, possible contributions to a project in terms of whatever I have managed to pull out of the maelstrom depths of my mind as the scope of the project. That's my solution to existential sanity for unanswerable questions. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to follow up on that. 
<laughs> I have something far less profound to say. <laughs> I'll give it a shot. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I can appreciate that. Absolutely. That, you know, the thing that the bounding box defines how you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. The same. One thing that I've done to, with fairly good success to keep myself productive and scalable and sane is just this kind of this concept of, I've heard people call this like a contribution ladder. I'm not sure if that's the right term. The basic idea is give people an open, documented way that they can take to get from where they are to sort of the next level of contribution, whether they want to go from nothing to like a contributor, someone who can review pull requests, or they want to go from that to a place where they have God mode on the project or anywhere in between. Giving people a way to get there where they don't have to come to me. Let's say I'm a core maintainer. They don't have to come to me every day and figure out, you know, what is the next thing that I've decided they need to do off the top of my head to get there. So taking all the arbitrariness out of that whole process, it tends to free me up to literally just go to the issue queue, think about the technical merits of something that someone has submitted, and then have a discussion on that alone. And that's hard. I don't have a solution to like build an AI to like free myself up to not do that. That's important. That's necessary for most any project. That's the fun part, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally, I think you're totally right. The like maelstrom of bounding boxes aside, the, the thing that's absolutely what you want to do, right? Like you, you want to create a self-serve path to participation, both because if your project is even remotely successful, it's totally impossible to scale yourself to interacting with everyone. And because that's how you really give people a sense of like yep. empowerment. You know, they're here's how you start, here's how you grow and look at this wider and wider scope of things that you're able to take on and, and work on essentially independently. Like it's the heart of what we do. I've seen that in a project I work on. I joined the project. I'm not a creator. I'm not a maintainer. I just contribute. It's called the CADA project inside of Kubernetes. It does event-driven serverless, whatever. They apply that not only to contributorship, they even apply it to part of the technology. They say, if you want to add this thing they have called a scaler, if you want to add a scaler, you either have to pitch it to us and it's going to be really hard for you to get it into the core just straight away. But there's another path. You can build an external one that connects to our API. And you can show, if you use the external one internally or whatever, you can show that this thing is necessary, this thing is useful because of reasons X, Y, and Z. You can prove those via its usage. And then we'll review it. And then you can bring it into the core. It's a very clear way. There's not as much ambiguity in an issue where someone suggests a feature. Because you can come with data. You can say, I've been using this. This is important for us. I think this is important for other people due to X, Y, and Z. So here's my proposal. And by the way, here's the code as well. So it's fairly easy to do the actual technical implementation at that point as well. That's really the first time I've ever seen this applied to non-community, non-positions like, of power type of thing. But so far, it seems to be working pretty well in that context too which I think is pretty cool. All of that to me sounds like a 
this thing that we've all this tool that we've had forever really that that works wonders once you discover it i believe uh, um the business people the the project manager, they, got, they call that a roadmap <laughs> the <laughs> the thing with roadmaps is uh they kind of force you to sort of uh, begin with the end in mind the trick is to realize that that end that's the bit you get to move and once you're at a comfortable enough place where you moved it for you know uh, up and down the bulleted list of, of features and, and fixes and things you'd like to add, right? You get to label that a version, and then you get to ship that, right? And then you get to learn from the people who use your software, and then they inform the next list, you know, where you put the, that line. And if you're lucky, right, you have, you have enough of those bullets that you can start to plan two, three, four versions out. Right. So a roadmap is a beautiful thing. Right. That doesn't mean it can't change the end of where you're going to ship the next thing. Right. You, you, you get to have an end. Right. You scope your work and then you get to label it and you get to ship it. Right. So we have to get in the habit of getting that feedback. Right. And in, in our projects and our open source projects or otherwise, we have to get in this habit of thinking about the roadmap. And yes, even for open source projects where you are welcoming new newbie contributors and everything else, whatever they pick up or whatever you label, you know, newbie friendly or however help wanted, however you want to tag those things, you know, small fixes, it doesn't matter, right? Those people coming in, they can still see, okay, well, I'm going to do a small commit. I'm going to do this is my first time contributing to an open source project. This looks like a good one. If they're curious, they can see where that one fits in the bigger picture. That's the thing with developers. We're always saying, hey, like how, how do I know my work matters? Well, if the people leading the project have done a good enough job, you should see that if you work on this feature right here or you fix this bug right here, right? That's going to be in version X or that that enables some other thing, some other feature. Some, like you, can, you should be able to see how adding this one thing or fixing this one bug, whatever it is, how that enables, right, the next thing, right? That's the beauty of, of a roadmap. That's the beauty of a loose plan or, or not having a plan, <laughs> but really planning. So the roadmap is a planning tool without necessarily, you know, locking you into some big plan, right? To use a, a Sam's weird philosophical take on planning <laughs> and, and plans. <laughs> That one is all Dwight Eisenhower, so I claim no credit there. I think that's all Eisenhower. Yeah, if, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? Pretty much, yeah. I feel like we talked about it a couple times on this podcast, actually, about you know people kind of saying that like since plans will always change and the enough would be accurate, that we shouldn't like go through the process of creating them at all. And I think that misses the point that, that we've been saying multiple times now of like, no, the planning, the road mapping, that action of actually like putting something together and having a base to go off of. Like we have a base now that we can shift, we can change, we can move it around. That doesn't mean that the process we went through to create that is flawed or broken or we shouldn't do it. That's the point of the process. The point of the process isn't to create a plan. The point of the process is to have an idea of where we want to go and say, okay, let's get on the road and start driving. An idea of where we want to go. I've think, heard that called a vision before. <laughs> I think we as a group might do worse with this concept than others because we're used to the idea that we make artifacts that like do functional things. Most of the rest of the world has a less precise mechanical concept of functionality. So the idea of a plan that changes probably doesn't distress other people as much. And they don't get into this loop of like, well, if we're going to change the plan, then why would we plan in the first place? Nope, nope. Like 
we might be disproportionately dysfunctional in this regard. I think it comes with the territory of like, we are people that work with just thought stuff, right? Like if we can imagine it, we can create it. <laughs> but unlike most other people that come up with thought stuff, like people that create like say movies or books or anything like that, like we have this other like very tangible thing that we can create very quickly, right? Authoring a novel takes a long time. Like producing a movie takes a long time. Writing some code to do something does not take much time. So we have that advantage of being able to create artifacts very quickly, but that also allows us to obsess over those artifacts. Like I, I said it a few podcasts ago. I think it was it was an unpopular opinion I made opposed to Peter Brogan, where I was just like, code is the least important part of software engineering. <laughs> Surprisingly, he agreed with me on that. But I think I, I, I still stick to that because I think it's like it's important, right? It's just way lower on the list than I think a lot of people put there. I think that does cause this kind of problem where we're just like artifact focus instead of focusing on the overall process of the project, right? Or like, you know, when it comes to some projects that we've talked about on the show, it's like, oh, well, that project's archived. So it's like, well, if it's going to wind up being archived, or going to wind up not being grown. Like, why bother doing it in the first place? Like the kind of like focus on the destination instead of the journey or to kind of blow it out to the existential thing. Like, you know, we aren't rushing to the end here. Like the end of humans is death and no one wants to rush toward that. So we should be more focused on this journey that we're going, like not so much on the artifacts at the end of the day. Well, Kelsey Hightower started a whole entire discussion about no code, low code with a repository that's literally called no code. And it has a readme and a contributing MD. And I, I think that might be it. And it's got, you know, I think it's, it's at least high thousands, maybe even in the tens now of stars on GitHub. And I mean, it started a community and it started a really, what I think is a really good discussion about the future of low code software engineering. So there's proof. It has 50,000 stars. <laughs> what are you talking about? I did not know that. I must've looked at this a long time ago. <laughs> So there, there's even more proof there. <laughs> oh, I like it. It's full of empty code blocks. Mm -hmm. It's like a parody. Yeah, I can copy an empty code block. I think it started as a parody, but I, I've seen like real substantive discussion about you know low code engineering from mm. that big thing for me right now. Yeah. So there's some. Yeah. There's an example for you. What's going on, Gophers? This episode is brought to you by Equinix Metal. If you want the choice and control of hardware with low overhead and the developer experience of the cloud, you need to check out Equinix Metal. Deploy in minutes across 18 global locations from Silicon Valley to Sydney. Visit metal.equinix.com slash just add metal and receive $100 in credit to play with. Again, metal.equinix.com slash just add metal. And by our friends at Fastly, they're running a massive promo on Compute at Edge. They're inviting our entire listener base to move latency-sensitive workloads to the edge with Compute at Edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. This is a limited-time offer, so head to Fastly.com slash podcast as soon as you can to check it out and get all the details. Here's the TLDR. Fastly's edge cloud network and modern approach to serverless computing allows you to deploy and run complex logic at the edge with unparalleled security and blazing fast computational speed. 
scale instantly and globally, reduce origin load, get real-time observability, and get seamless integration with your existing tech stack. Head to facet.com slash podcast to get compute at edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. Once again, facet.com slash podcast. Sam, why don't you start us off? Do you have an unpopular opinion? Oh, how many? <laughs> Observability is not meaningfully different from other data-oriented disciplines. It's just another data discipline. Whether you're talking about like doing, uh, you know, your BI business analyst type person, such that anybody who is going to look at a bunch of data and make decisions on the basis of it. Yeah, we do slightly different things, but no more different than the other data disciplines against each other. I agree with you. Like, I don't... <laughs> Damn it, Sam. It, it's supposed... Yeah, but nobody in observability land is, like, ready to talk about it. That's because... But metrics logs traces. Yo. Peter said to me the other day, he's like, I'm... <laughs> I'm sorry I wrote that blog post. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if there's someone that's going to find that unpopular, it'd be Johnny, so... No, I, I don't disagree. So when you said that, I was thinking, you know, if I handed my observability tooling, right, the stuff I use right now, right, to help teams, if I handed that to a business analyst, right, so a number cruncher, somebody who maybe uses Excel spreadsheets, you know, um, or maybe a Power BI or whatever, right, these, these sorts of tooling, right? If I told them like, hey, here's a bunch of requests, are coming in like you don't need to be aware of, of my problem domain right you don't need to understand what an http request is you don't need to understand you know the technology stack that i'm using you don't need anything like that right find me the hot spots in this data they would they would do what they do run the formulas that they run they would find me the hot spots and lo and behold that would equate to the problem areas in my system in my architecture in my platform they would find me the hot spots yeah i would say the only thing that they would maybe need to ask is like what kind of value are you actually trying to get out of this data as an organization in order to understand like what, what the hotspots are, how to qualify them, how to describe them? What to look for. Yeah. And the way that that's phrased is in terms of like, okay, we have data. We are an organization. How do we make our organization better from this data? That is the fundamentally common question across data disciplines is really my point. Like we have some different tools that we use and there are some different common patterns in the data. Those are not meaningful differences as far as I'm yeah, I don't know if that's going to be unpopular, Sam. You're going to have to... I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Aaron, do you have an unpopular opinion? Sure, yeah, I do. The value in the open source Go community, the value extracted from generics is going to far outweigh the negatives that will be introduced as a result of generics. Oh, that seems obvious. Sorry. Do, wait, do people not believe that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll see on the... Uh, do you still do the Twitter poll? Yeah, yeah, these will go up on Twitter. So <laughs> yeah, I've been reading over the past week or so. You know, a lot of the criticisms. So maybe I just thought that would be unpopular. But you know, you see big chunks again in the Kubernetes world specifically. You know, you see big chunks of auto-generated code that can go away as a result of generics. 
And whether it will or not, I hope I hope it will. Whether it will or not, though, is going to depend on the community. But if it does go away, I think it will again. But let's say when it goes away, that's going to be a huge savings, not only in lines of code, but cognitive load for every developer that integrates with those Kubernetes libraries. See, I want to make that stuff go away with Q. I mean, generics are fine, but like Q, Q's worth it. So, you know. <laughs> I, I, I have a repository. It's happening. Make it so and tag me. And I would love to see. Yeah, I'd love to see how that works. And for those who don't know, check out qlang.org. That's what Sam's talking about. And Skewmata. Ooh. Yeah, it's actually a thing. Now we'll put that in the show notes too. That's the repository that I'm working on. It's By the time this is out, it should actually have all the, the docs posted. I've always kind of felt like generics are positioned, are going to wind up being a lot like channels and go routines where people use them too much in the beginning, but then they eventually figure out how to like calm down and use them in strategic ways. Like, I feel like we all start off writing go and there's like channels everywhere and go routines everywhere. And we all calm down and we're like, nope, it's all good. We don't need this stuff as much. So yeah, I don't know if that one's going to be unpopular either. Mm. But Johnny, do you have an unpopular opinion? I do. Don't bother having dreams. <laughs> Make plans no. instead, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> no, Johnny was just like, nope. <laughs> Hang on, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to call my six-year-old in, and you can tell her to just like kill her dreams. Okay, yeah. Elaborate? This, I'm, I'm excited for the next sentence here. Yeah, the, the pause, the pause kind of added some drama. Yeah, don't bother having dreams. <laughs> Without deadlines. Uh, <laughs> did you tweet that? You tweeted that, didn't you? That's a really different yeah. statement. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Can we have the tweet so it's just like that first, and then there's a tweet after it that's a reply that says, without deadlines, just to see. <laughs> I think if you say it with the same cadence, it's going to be wildly unpopular. <laughs> if you say the whole thing at once, I think that's going to be pretty popular. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, seriously, seriously. Those things turn into nightmares that just chase you around, you know? Yeah. Just occupy space in your head. Yeah. Once again, (laughs) come on, Johnny. You were supposed to have the unpopular, unpopular. (sighs) I actually do disagree. I cherish my my deadlineless dreams. But Mm. now we're actually talking about... I would say the question is, how many do you keep around? Mm. What do you get out of it, though, if you just like keep them around in your head, rolling around in your head every day? Hope. Hope. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just need that dopamine hit of like thinking about something, like thinking about what it's going to be like when it exists, even if it's like far off in the future and you have no, it's like, ah, it's exciting to think about. Mm. So is there a difference between hopes and dreams then? Dreams have deadline. Hopes are just hopes. There you go. Wow. No, dreams, dreams with deadlines are called goals. True. Wow. That's like... Three, we have three statements now that can go on a mug or a t-shirt. <laughs> you hear it here, merch. There's a gotime.fm slash store coming with the special collection of Johnny quotes. <laughs> oh, Lord. If we keep having Sam and Johnny on podcast together, we're just going to have to name it like meta time because like that's just that. It's, I, I ask a question and it's already like, well, let mm-hmm. me question the premise of your mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, here we go. Um, All right, well, uh, 
I think that's a good place to end the show. So uh, thank you, Sam and Aaron, for, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Johnny, for being my wonderful co-host as always. And thank you very much to you listeners for uh, coming along in this rather wild ride. That's our show for this week. Thanks for hanging with us. Gopher Con is right around the corner, and we have three GoTime Live sessions. We're doing a panel discussion, an AMA with the Go team, and we're playing another round of Gopher Say. Register today and add our sessions to your agenda at gophercon.com. Tickets start at $0. GoTime is produced by me, Jared Santo, with music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by some awesome partners. Thanks again to Fastly, Linode, and LaunchDarkly. Next week, Natalie and Johnny are joined by Mickey Tabeka and Roger Pepe to reminisce on their first decade with Go and to forecast what their next decade might look like. Subscribe if you haven't yet at GoTime.fm. That's what's coming up next time on GoTime. That was a wild yeah. ride. That was fun. I was. Yeah. I have to drop Johnny. I'm getting you a T-shirt. <laughs> Don't have dreams without <laughs> deadlines. <laughs> nice. Oh nice. man. Nice. I want that to be part of the soundboard. Like that's. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Don't have dreams. Dramatic pause. Without deadlines. Without deadlines. <laughs> you know, I'm sick of following my dreams, man. I'm just going to ask where they're going and hook up with them later. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>